Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Exile. Exile. People say that word like it tastes bad. It does. It's been 64 days since I've left Haven. I've been feeling... Strange, lately. Like my memories are wisps of smoke that dissipate if I think on them too long. Being alone for too long can unmoor the mind. Talking to someone helps. Pretending to talk to someone might. I want to be clear that I am pretending to talk to someone. Talking to oneself is the sign of an unstable mind. (sighs) A trader passed by this morning. He had the usual wares, but also a few leisure items. Some mags, playing cards, a voice recorder. This might have been stupid, but... Oh, I I, I was drawn to this little gadget. I traded two cans of beans and two rabbits for it. I can always hunt harder tomorrow. Once my mind's gone... Well, now it won't be. Now where should I begin? I wish I had kept diaries as a child. Dear diary, I am exiled for a crime I did not commit. (sighs) I didn't do it. No. No, if I start now, I will be angry and unable to think. I must focus on the light. Elder Rice told me to wait. To survive out here in the wilds long enough for him to change the minds of the rest of Haven's Council so they can let me back in. What a misunderstanding. The people of Haven are good people. Once they realize their mistake, they'll send the guards out to find me and bring me back. It would take some time, Elder Rice said. Wait for my signal, he said. When the blackbird speaks my name, it's time to come home. I'm not sure what that means, but he wouldn't have said it if it didn't make sense. (sighs) What does a good historian do? keep record of the truth as he can best recollect it. That way I can return to these recordings when my memories float away. Haven is a beautiful village. Not like the wilds. Well fortified, with high stone walls guarding us from what's outside. The houses are uniform in their charm. White siding, white porches, white wooden fences... The grass is deep green and lush, without being vulgar. Gardens are rife with heavy blooms of magenta and goldenrod. The people are good. Ah, the people. I miss other people. Murder doesn't happen in Haven. Well, I guess it did once. And they thought it was me, and I was headed to the gallows. But Elder Rice stepped in and decreed that no, it shall be exile. Without him... I would be swinging, my feet twitching, my skirts soiled, my story done. He was the one who took me out here to this hermit's hut. The one who left me with rations and a hunting knife and 
perhaps most dear, with hope. He did all he could to save me. This hut is not like Haven. When the carriage pulled up to it, Elder Rice turned to me with the same look I used to give Mama when I burned dinner. I guess I mean he seemed embarrassed or something. The hut was small and just about leaning a good 45 degrees to the side. Bare bones. The wood dusty and dull. The small stove rusted and grimy. It was the kind of place that looks pretty in a painting, but when you're actually standing in it, you feel wrong and empty. Here's your new home, he said. Home. I think the horror was evident on my face because he hurried to reassure me that this was only temporary. That I would be returning to my true home, pending the council's coming to their right minds. But after some weeks, I had fallen into a routine. And some hours, I even forgot to listen for blackbirds. I do not think I was happy, no. But I was busy. And that was better than stewing in memories and hope that was beginning to grow stale. If I'd stayed busy, if I'd continued to fill my days with listening for birds and small routines, I think my daily disappointments would have ebbed until I forgot to care. A storm blew in last night and brought to my attention a leaky roof. I ventured up to the loft to examine the damage and I found something. I don't know if I would have seen it had I not caught my sleeve on the loft floor's split wood on my climb up carved in neat letters the words, I am here. How alone must one be to have to memorialize their existence? How long was the author of these words here? 64 days? Where is this person now? Are they here somewhere else? I inhaled, and in that breath I lived an entire life. The council member meant to fetch me was delayed on his quest. He met a beautiful young woman, you see. She was trapped in the hollow of a tree, hiding from bandits with knives as brutal as their intentions. He saved her and brought her back to Haven, and by then, Haven had already offered repentance to the creator by holding a memorial service for me. All of the village attended and mourned my loss, for I must have perished in the wilds, and they were very sorry to have mistakenly exiled me. They put up a statue of me in the town square. She is prettier than I am and children throw coins into the pool at her feet. Meanwhile, I lived and died alone many years later, here in this loft, my fingers tracing the words of someone else. I am here. I exhale, and indeed, I am here, standing on the ladder and looking at, yes, the sizable crack in the roof. That life is over, and I am back to contemplating a fix for a roof to a hut that I now realize I do not want to die in. No blackbirds have been saying anything, let alone my name. I think Elder Rice was confused. I don't think there are any blackbirds in this part of the wilds. I am a five days journey west by carriage from Haven. Maybe he's not familiar with the local fauna. I think... uh, I think I have to make my way back. I'm sure everything is straightened out by now and they're wondering where I am. Besides, food is running low. That trade was stupid and impulsive. Some say there are small settlements, groups of nomads that run around in the wilds. I can trade or work for food on my way back to Haven. I 
despise going against council orders, but I have to find my way back. I have to get back home. Hello. The wilds is like nothing I've ever experienced. Everything is strange and unpredictable and frightening. I need to tell you this now while the memory still has form. I set out yesterday from the hut, gathered some dried meat and water, my hunting knife, and some clothes. I said goodbye to that stinky hut and set out on the road to Haven. I was in high spirits as I woke with the sense that I was doing the right thing. The road looked so much more beautiful to me than it did on the last journey. I was appreciating new things. The satisfying give of the wet road beneath my feet. It's dirt still damp from the morning dew. The way the hackberry trees stood sentinel lining my path. The morning sun filtering in gold and lighting the grass an impossible green. But after a few hours of walking, my legs became heavy and I sought out a place to rest and take in some lunch. Almost as if on cue, I spotted a small wooden sign up ahead, marking a small path that forked off into the trees. The sign's charm became evident as I approached. Hand-painted roses tied with periwinkle ribbons encircled the words, The Constance Sisters. Peering down the path, I spied a beautiful house, sky blue, stately, and hemmed in by trees. A rose garden kept with care bore deep red blooms, the same vivacious ruby as the front door. White wicker chairs stuffed with plump gingham cushions squatted lazily on the front porch. Growing up in Haven, we were warned against all who dwelt in the wilds. Raiders, savages, monstrosities. But this could not be the home of any of those types of folk. Perhaps these sisters would trade with me, or allow me to clean house for some food. I stepped on the path, my boots crunching on the gravel. As I approached the house, a breeze brought the smell of roses and something else. Chicken or meat pies or something. My stomach rumbled and my feet ached for a seat in one of those chairs. Right before I was about to knock, a flutter to my left caught my attention. It was a pull string attached to a piece of parchment, adorned with delicate script similar to that on the road sign. Please pull me and ring the bell. Our sweet home cannot abide such a violent act as striking one's fist upon its entrance. It was certainly strange, but perhaps people outside of Haven are all this particular. I rang the bell and delicate chimes rang somewhere inside the house. Before the chimes finished, the front door swung open to reveal two old women peering owlishly at me. Their gray hair was pulled back into identical severe buns, their clothes the exact same high-necked, tailored, long-sleeved navy blue wool dresses with white lacy frills bursting from the wrists and necklines. Their waists seemed impossibly small, corseted tight, and the volume of their bustle skirts made it so they were both jammed tight in the doorway. Their big gray eyes were huge behind their thick glasses. They spoke over each other constantly, their voices like the cooing of pigeons. Oh, visitors. Yes, visitors. In time for... Why, luncheon, of course. You must be hungry. Starving. And parched. So dry. Won't you two come in? Quickly, before before the... the food gets cold. And all the milk drunk. Visitors? You two? I wondered. I turned and behind me stood a man in a dull gray suit and matching hat, clasping a large gray case. 
He smiled at me in a way I can only describe as innocuous. When my eyes left his face, I found myself vaguely wondering what he looked like. I chalked it up to my memory problems, which are irking me something fierce, let me tell you. My stomach growled again, ushering me inside. The house was pristine, but cluttered. Multitudes of curios stood at attention in organized chaos all throughout the house. I could have spent hours touching and examining all of these strange objects, but I was raised polite and I didn't want to ask if they weren't willing to offer. Sunlight entered through gauzy curtains, carried by a mild breeze. Each of the rooms seemed to be color-themed. Through a doorway to the lilac dining room, I could see a table set for four, with more plates and cutlery than I would know what to do with. The sisters herded the gray man and me into the parlor for cakes and fruit punch. They quickly returned to the kitchen, never once stopping their buzzing chatter. Occasionally, they would return to supply more cakes or punch, but never addressed me or the gray man. I introduced myself to him and he to me, but I cannot remember his name, although I know he said it. He and I sat in awkward silence, dwarfed by large, heavy furniture, all teal, in a room wallpapered teal, filled with teal odds and ends. I kept feeling like the gray man in his, well, gray, and I in my dull brown shift dress were little stains of wrongness in this carefully curated blue-green sea. We sipped politely from our glasses, teal, ate many cakes of varying sizes and shapes, also teal, and made awkward conversation. If it had a color, I would say it was probably beige. While we murmured very polite things to each other, the sisters began setting the table in the lilac room. Roast beasts of various sizes were placed on the table by one sister, only to be immediately replaced with other roast beasts by the other. Big silver platters laden with fruit so ripe their juices threatened to burst from their thin skins were replaced with pies and cakes, only to be replaced again by enormous, almost obscene pastries in the shape of the sun. Food rotated and plates clunked and cutlery clinked and the sisters chattered and the gray man and I stared at each other with expressions that were friendly but not too forward. I told him that I was returning from a hunting trip. I hate lying. Of all sins, it is one of the most treacherous. But I felt that if he knew I was exiled, I don't know, I just didn't want him to know. He told me that he was an antique typewriter salesman and wanted to sell his last typewriter. What a life. I had encountered traders who sold various wares. There were a few the council had allowed into the walls of Haven. Some even had things from before offered alongside their more basic wares, but none had the luxury of specializing in something so unique. I love gadgets, especially those from before, and I desperately wanted to look at the typewriter, but again, I wanted to be polite, and I thought it presumptuous to ask. To communicate all of this, I said, a typewriter, wow. He stared at me, puzzled, for a very long time. Then he swallowed the last of his punch, only to be refilled almost instantly by one of the sisters, and said hesitantly, well, I could show you, while the sisters prepare luncheon. I replied that yes, please, I would like very much to see it, I don't know why I was filled with such joy at the prospect of looking at something that Elder Rice would dismiss as broken junk from a broken time, but maybe it was because this was the first thing I was doing just for me in a very long time. In the hut, I was not prone to trying to enjoy myself. My days were filled with, at first, learning how to hunt. I ate lean the first couple weeks. And then foraging for mushrooms and berries, listening for blackbirds that speak, catching and drying meat, then sleep, 
in Haven, it was a lot of chores around the house, helping and learning under Mama. Someone has to be Haven's herbalist when she's gone. Oh. Where was I? Suffice it to say, I wasn't tinkering around or doing much for myself, so eating tiny teal cakes and looking at an antique typewriter seemed quite indulgent. The gray man unsnapped the clasps on his case and pulled out the typewriter. He placed it gingerly on the tea table. It was in fantastic shape, very clean, almost shiny. The keys were coppery and shone like coins. He pulled a sheaf of parchment out of his case and fed a sheet into the machine. He gestured for me to pull my chair up to it and test it out. I dragged my heavy chair across the teal-painted wood floor. The loud scraping barely slowed the chatter of the sisters in the kitchen, who were now arguing about what kind of pot pies to serve and replacing a bowl of punch with a pitcher of milk. Slowly, I typed H-E-L-L-O. The keys did not stick, and instead smacked the typewriter ribbon with satisfying thunks. The marks on the paper were clean. What an amazing, simple machine. I smiled and folded my hands in my lap. And the gray man smiled, too. He leaned back and peered over his shoulder into the kitchen. I followed his gaze, but another thunk resounded. And our heads swiveled in unison to the typewriter. A G stood on the page. Before I could say anything more, the typewriter typed more. O-O-D-N-I-G-H-T. Good night, I whispered breathlessly. And at that moment, the gas lamps on the wall burst, and their fires went out. I gripped the arms of my chair for dear life. It was complete darkness, the sunlight mysteriously gone. I screamed once, the burst of sound forcing its way out of my throat. I blinked many times and saw no change. I called out for the gray man, and mid-yell, the lights returned. The lamps were whole and burning quietly, but the sun was gone, and the windows were dark. I was still seated in my chair, and so was the gray man. We looked at each other warily. His face was drained of color, and I'm sure mine was too. I felt so faint. Then we noticed it. The quiet. The constant thrum of chatter was gone. The heavy blanket of woolen silence was stifling. The breeze had gone, and all was still. We cautiously rose from our chairs with wobbling knees and crept to the dining room. The table was cleared, its lilac tablecloth bare. As we neared the table, we saw what lied just beyond it. On the far side of the room, the two sisters. But they were dressed in white nightgowns, their long gray hair down. They looked like two little girls just old. My mouth felt dry and my stomach lurched. I couldn't feel my hands and my ears felt stuffed with cotton. I felt myself rush to their sides, although I made no conscious decision to do it, and my hand felt for pulses, but there were none. Their skin was papery and thin and cold. I told the gray man that they were dead, and he simply looked at me grimly. I was about to accuse him of having something to do with this when the thunk of the typewriter called to us again. We returned to its side, unable to resist its call. By the time we reached it, 
the words were almost finished. The keys came to a rest with the words, She is awake. The only thought in my mind at that moment was escape. I had to leave. I gathered my things in a hurry and burst out the front door. However, my foot touched no grass, no gravel. As I left the doorway, I stumbled into the kitchen at the back of the house. I was halfway into the dining room and about to crush the poor sisters under my boots before I realized what had happened. A scream tore itself from my throat and I ran back into the parlor, probably looking like some wild beast, and grabbed the lapels of the gray man who was hovering over the typewriter. I shook him and I demanded that he explain this madness until he grabbed me firmly by the shoulders and simply said, this has to end. His eyes reminded me of neighbor Samson's when Elder Fine told him he best take care of his sick horse, the one that wasn't going to get better. At that point, my gaze had strayed from his face. What did he look like again? To the parlor. The teal wallpaper was peeling, and everything in the room was covered in a uniform layer of dust. The only sound for a moment was the sound of our breathing. The gray man's in deep, even breaths. Mine in ragged gasps. Then, a soft creak from above. Then another. Footsteps. Our hands dropped to our sides, and we looked upwards, our mouths open like dumb trout. The gray man started for the stairs, and fearing being left alone, I trailed him like a baby calf. As he embarked upwards, I threw a glance to the lilac room only to find that the sisters were gone. The lilac wallpaper, like the teal, peeled from the walls, and the bare table was covered in dust. The gray man walked upstairs with grim purpose, but I could see that his hands were clenched and that his knuckles were white. We entered a hallway, and all of the doors were shut and looked like they had been for a long time. Except one. The fourth door on the right was ajar. The slice of light on the floor was warm and somehow inviting. I crept slowly behind the gray man as he approached the door. He pushed it with two fingers and it swung open silently. Inside, a woman sat facing away from us. A mirror covered with a sheet faced her. She was trying on jewelry as if she could see her reflection and humming softly to herself. She didn't seem to notice us as we entered. Oh, the room. It felt so wrong. Everywhere you looked, darkness seemed to creep in from the corners of your eyes, begging for you to look only to find that the darkness was somewhere else now, behind you. The gray man slowly pulled what looked like a piece of bone from his jacket pocket and approached the woman, holding the shard in front of him like he was trying to find groundwater. I stepped on a creaky floorboard and all of us froze. Then in a flash of movement, the woman yanked down the sheet and we all saw her reflection. She had no face. She was merely a hollow shell with a huge hole from her crown to her chin, like a meaty jug lined with teeth and shattered bone. Jewelry spilled out of the hole, caught on the ragged teeth. A scream erupted from the open maw, something deep and old and very bad. The gray man stumbled backwards and knocked into me, and we crawled as fast as we could out of there, tumbling and scrambling down the stairs, running until we smacked into the front door, which, wouldn't you know it, would not open. I was about to try the windows when I heard a click behind me. A door had popped ajar, one we had not seen, 
under the stairs. The gray man started for it, and when I tried to stop him, he told me, in a rush of fear but also certainty, that it was almost over. He seemed to know what he was doing, so I thought it was best to follow suit. I am, after all, a stranger in these parts. Plus, there was no way I was staying alone in that house. The door led to more stairs, this time offering a steep descent into a pit of darkness. As we entered, a wind from nowhere picked up and whipped my hair around my face. The gray man's jacket flapped around his sides, but his arm did not waver as he held the shard of bone out in front of him. Suddenly, the door slammed and we were cloaked in darkness. The wind buffeted my ears and I reached up to cover them. Before I could, I felt bony hands grasp my wrists, urgent and painful. I shrieked and struggled, my voice joining the howl of the wind, and then, nothing. No sound. The wind stopped and all I felt were the claw-like hands on my wrists, then cold breath on my neck, a whisper in my ear. I'm sorry. The whisper got louder and louder until it was shrieking and it was the wind screaming over and over again, I'm sorry. I kicked out at nothing, struggling against my captor, trying not to fall down the stairs. I finally wrenched myself free from the hands, or maybe they just let go, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I just hunched down on the stairs, shielding my head from the storm. Then a rapid hush, and the light was back, and the gray man stood in the middle of the basement, holding a lamp. The light cast a shaky glow over the dirt floor, and at the foot of the stairs was a crumpled skeleton, lying prostrate. The gray man told me to lift her and take her outside, and, oh, creator, I didn't want to. I didn't want to touch or disturb her from where she'd fallen, but he motioned with such urgency that it made me feel as if I must, as if it were the right and only thing to do. I gingerly lifted her up, and when I turned her over, I saw that her face was destroyed, caved in from the fall. I held her gently, and for some reason it made me so sad. The gray man led me outside, through a back door that now opened into the rose garden. The roses were overgrown and full of thorns and brown leaves. Dry stems offered heads of dead blooms. We stopped at a stone carved with the word sisters, in the same delicate script I remembered from the sign. The gray man retrieved an old rusty shovel from the shed and returned with a grim look on his face, the details of which again escaped me. It was then that I sat cradling the dead sister in my arms, waiting patiently while the gray man dug up the grave of the subterranean sister. It was quiet, and the only sound was his heavy breathing and the sound of dirt being sliced, and then he struck something hollow. It was a strange coffin, too wide. After we dredged it up, I realized it was made for two. We opened the coffin, and there on one side lay a deeply desiccated corpse, with a blade sticking out of its sunken belly. I lifted the skeleton and deposited her into the waiting half of the coffin. And I don't know if it was how I put her in there or what, but when I stepped back, she was on her side, one bony arm across the belly of her sister, her hand resting over the blade. The gray man placed the sliver of bone he was holding into her hand almost reverently, and it was then that I saw that it was in fact an ivory handle, snapped off of the dagger in what? Rage? Agony? Regret? 
The skeleton shifted, or maybe the other corpse did, but then they were holding each other. And they looked so small, like two baby mice in a blanket. Something pulled at my gut then, and I was too sad to look at them anymore. The gray man finished burying them, and I thought about home. He smiled at me kindly, tipping his head, and took a small path into the woods. The doors and the windows to the house were boarded up, and half of it was consumed by ivy. The air felt more crisp, more free, I don't know. I made my way back to the road, my stomach somehow full, my body somehow rejuvenated. But my mind was muddled, my thoughts confused. It seemed to be morning, the mist crawling on the road beside me as I continued my journey to Haven. I know that this seems impossible, which is why I must record this now before... before I start to doubt. I walked more along the road until I was tired. Making camp was easy. I don't want to be in this strange place anymore. Bad things happen here, and there is no council to clean things up. Who protects the people out here? I feel very alone. I just want to go home. Exile was written, performed, produced, and mixed by me, Kelly Nugent. The beautiful music that elevates this story to something I could have never imagined it could be was composed by the ever-talented Annalise Nelson. If you liked this show, please, please, please leave a kindly review on Apple Podcasts or tell your lover or friend or enemy about this show, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.